Hear ye, hear ye, word nerds. Be forewarned that this podcast contains body language of the modern and early modern varieties, so plan your listening accordingly. Or don't. That's a choice that you can make, but don't say we didn't warn you. I don't know what period this is in. Georgian? Would, Regency? It, I don't Regency. know. Regency. Yeah, it's Restoration? Regency. If it's, if it's uh, early 1800s, then it's Regency. It's 1700s. Jane Austen time. Oh, okay. 1700s. Then that would be Georgian. Great. Georgian. It's the Georgian period. Uh, so anyway, the the first... Um, well, I guess it depends on which part of the 1700s, but anyway. The ahead. early ones. Oh, okay. So anyway, Georgian. <laughs> uh, well, okay, cut all this out. It's not important okay. when it is, other than it's not at the time that Shakespeare wrote Got it. the play. Welcome to the Hurly Burly Shakespeare Show. We are your hosts, Jess Hamlet and Aubrey Whitlock. And together, we are Whamlet. And this week, we're talking about the Merry Wives of Windsor. Yay. Yeah, we're so excited <laughs> we're to talk so about this play. you guys. <laughs> yeah, it's the best. Okay, thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. We really hope you enjoy this show. (laughs) This one in particular. (laughs) Please Uh, like it, despite how much we hate this play. (sighs) Every week on this podcast, we discuss a different play by our favorite guy, William Heathcliff Shakespeare, at what we like to call the 101 level. Yeah, that's introductory stuff. Everything you need to know to have a general understanding of the play and its major themes and other cool stuff that you will get nowhere else. Like our opinions from our lady brains. Yeah. That's, that's a real thing that we have brains and opinions and ladies. All right. Well, let's uh, kick it off with our device of the week. Shall we? Okay. So because we're word nerds each week, we draw a random device from our handy dandy ASC rhetorical device flashcards. Yes. For actors and scholars, knowing these rhetorical devices helps us recognize the patterns in Shakespeare's characters language so that we can gain a better understanding of what's being said and how it's being said. So it helps us understand characters through their speech tactics. So here we go. Draw a card, mama duck. I'm a mama duck, I guess. Okay. Tell me to stop. Stop. Do do do. Ooh, this week the device is anaphora. Oh, have we not done anaphora yet? Apparently not. Huh. Anaphora. Alrighty. We, we did anastrophe. I think that's the one you're thinking of because it's I mean, the. Yeah. I just, it seemed as though we, we should have done it because it's so uh, fundamental. Right. Yeah. It's pretty basic. Yeah. Um, anaphora. A N A P H O R A. Anaphora. It is the repetition. Repetition. Wow. I can talk. Repetition of the same word or group of words at the beginning of successive clauses, sentences, or lines. Yeah. We've got two examples on this card. First bees, uh, John of Gaunt from Richard II. He says in that pretty epic speech, Jess, can you guess? 
You leaned in like you were going to guess. No, well, I was, I leaned in like I was, I was going to make fun of what you said. You said first bees. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, Aubrey. Uh, but then I decided <laughs> to let it pass. Is it, it's this, this England, the scepter dial, this whatever, yep. is it that speech? Yeah. Yes. This royal throne of kings, this scepter dial, this earth of majesty, this seat of Mars, this other Eden, demi paradise. Um, he likes England a little bit. Can you guess? It's just the this that's repeating. Yes. Which is, I suppose, technically it's an a repetition of a beginning. But I, I think there are better examples. There are. And I'm going to get to the second one, which I think might satisfy you. It's Mercutio oh, from Romeo and Juliet. He says, now art thou sensible. Now art thou Romeo. Now art thou what thou art. So that's the repetition of the phrase. Now art thou. Yeah, I like that one better. Yeah. Yeah. We've got two options for this one. So, yes, anaphora, repetition of beginnings at the beginning of things. (laughs) (laughs) That is where beginnings go, generally. Is it? Is it? Okay. I mean, unless you're Quentin Tarantino. Or the Lord of the Rings. Um, Okay. Because beginnings happen at the end several times. I'll take your word for it. (laughs) You know. I just like a cheat. I just leveled up into like a whole new level of nerddom, I think. Anyway, that was fun. It's now time for your burbage break with Master Master Hamlet. Alrighty. So, if you know anything about The Merry Wives of Windsor, aside from like what it's about, you probably have heard the idea that it was written because Queen Elizabeth commanded it. She's purported to sort of famously said, write me a play featuring Falstaff in love. Um, So that's what we're talking about today is the Falstaff in love myth because it's a myth. So I will, you know, I guess I I sort of buried the lead or let the lead fly or I I showed my hand. It's uh, Queen Elizabeth is supposed to have said, write me a play with Falstaff in love, and that is why this play exists. Two 18th century sources suggest that this is true, although, um, Aubrey, I don't know if you know which century 1602 was in. The 17th. But it was not, it was not in the 18th century. Right. Um, oh, is this the fucking Victorians, like, ruining everything again? No, this is pre-Victorian. Okay. In fact, the first uh written account of this idea that queen elizabeth commissioned the play happens in 1702 which is a full 100 years after the quarto of merry wives appeared that's from john dennis who was a literary critic who in fact adapted the merry wives of windsor i don't know what he did to it but i'll bet you it's wild so what he said was quote I know very well that it hath pleased one of the greatest queens that ever was in the world. This comedy was written at her command and by her direction, and she was so eager to see it acted that she commanded it to be finished in 14 days, and was afterwards, as tradition tells us, very well pleased at the representation. Uh, I'm not going to say that that's not true, but I am going to say that it's not true. (laughs) 
hundred years later, this guy's a hundred years later. He has no idea. He doesn't know. He was not alive when Shakespeare wrote the play. He was not alive when Queen Elizabeth was alive. He was not alive. He doesn't know. And this is the first time that these details appear in print, in any kind of print, as far as any scholars are aware. Um, so where does this come from? I've just asked this question, where does this come from? Like, I have the answer. I don't have the answer. I don't, I don't know where, where it comes from. But the first time it appears in print is 1702 with John Dennis. Mystery. Yeah. So Ooh. a slightly more reliable source. And I say slightly more reliable because this is a person I've heard of who we um, attribute a lot of stuff to now. Uh, so Nicholas Rowe, um, who is probably the first editor of Shakespeare's plays. Um, he wrote the life of Shakespeare in 1709 and edited Shakespeare's plays and produced them together in uh, a series of volumes and did a lot of stuff to the text that sort of built the foundation on which all modern editors um, deal with Shakespeare now. Anyway, Nicholas Rowe in 1709, he wrote uh, that the Queen, quote, was so well pleased with that admirable character of Falstaff in the two parts of Henry IV that she commanded him to continue it for one play more and show him in love. So there we have it. Two 18th century accounts of how this 16th century play came to be. Um, as far as I'm aware, there is no evidence that this play was written in two weeks, nor is there evidence that it was written uh, at the behest of Queen Elizabeth for any reason, uh, particularly because she wanted to see Falstaff in love. Uh, this is what we call false staff. Uh, <laughs> get out with your uh, That's what I have to say. Falstaff okay. and love myth. It's a myth. Doesn't exist. The end forever by forever. <laughs> okay. Wamble it out. That was your Burbage break with Master Master Hamlet. Let's get to the summary of this terrible play. Uh, we like to start our summaries off with five-word unhelpful titles. Mine is, how are they in Gloucestershire? Will you explain your five-word title to me? How the fuck do Mistress Quickly and Falstaff end up in Gloucestershire? They are London people. Like, All right. they, okay. How, how? How? Why? Wherefore? Like, I just don't get it. I don't understand. Did he just relocate for funsies? What is happening? Well, I think there are some clues in the text. I mean, his little friend, but, Shallow or whatever. It's those same dudes, right? Yeah, he's got those... Pistol and Nim and right, maybe Bardolph is there also. But they are not country people either. How do they all just end up in the country? I don't get it. I was listening to this play on audiobook yesterday trying to figure it out and maybe i just didn't listen well enough but like i don't get it are they on vacay they just went on a big group boar's head vacation like i don't i don't understand and mistress you know, quickly has a house in windsor like how i'm not sure that i ever understood that they were actually in windsor but if they're not then that's a lot of traveling for ann page to do yeah no i mean i don't think they're I, I thought it was like another area of London because this is, I mean, this play is the closest to city comedy that Shakespeare gets, right? Where's Windsor Castle? 
And also, did Windsor Castle exist in 1602? I think it did. In that, in Windsor where Harry and Meghan got married? Yes. It's got to be near London, doesn't it? The uh, the Arden is not, it's got nothing to say about setting. Of course also, not. Which is annoying. Fucking unhelpful. Uh, Windsor is west of London. So but like, how far? <sighs> Okay, let me get directions. <laughs> Hang on. Like, how long would it take me to drive um, from Buckingham say... Palace to St. George's Chapel in Windsor? Buckingham Palace. Great. Thank you for the landmark. That will help me that will yeah. help me get the map. <laughs> like, how far did Meghan and Harry travel on their wedding day? Windsor to Buckingham Palace. It is 26 and a half miles. Which in early mod in an early modern sense, that's kind of fucking far away. That's like a day. Sure, that's a day's ride. It's I would a say. day. It's a. I mean, I think I don't think it's inconceivable for Falstaff and his band of knights to get on horses and ride for a day and have a little little holiday in the countryside. And also, this is not Gloucestershire. I was thinking two Henry four. Two sure. Henry four is when they go to Gloucestershire. Well, don't you feel foolish? So my new five-word unhelpful title is "Why are they in Windsor?" Very good, very good. Why? Um, Why and how? Uh, so my five-word unhelpful title is "Falstaff gets attacked by fairies." Yeah, it's true. Which is basically the plot of the play. <laughs> Frankly, I'm not oh, sure how done. unhelpful. Okay, we this can is. go. Yeah. Uh, so thanks we everybody for listening. Uh, we hope you enjoyed this podcast and come back for more. You yep. can find us on all the socials at yep. places and we it up. the play. It's done. <laughs> We've solved it. It's over. Uh, uh, okay. All right. Let's talk about the characters. Yeah. Let's. So a little bit of dramatis personae before we jump into a summary. Um, first and foremost is uh, everybody's favorite vice character, except for Jess. Because she's weird. I and she doesn't hate like him. Falstaff. I hate it him. Is Sir John Falstaff? You he know sucks. him. You know him as the lascivious old drunk knight palling around with Prince Hal in one Henry IV and two Henry IV, uh, and the guy who dies uh, without being on stage in Henry V. That's who he is. He's still old and lascivious and drunk. Uh, then we have Master Ford, who is a middle class gentleman, and his wife, Mistress Ford. Then we have Master Page, another middle-class gentleman, and his wife, Mistress Page. They have a daughter. Her name is Anne Page. Then there's Slender and Dr. Caius and a young man named Fenton, who are all suitors to Anne Page. Also, Mistress Quickly, who's a hostess. She's the hostess with the mostess. Yeah. There are other characters in this play that you will probably remember from the Henry IV plays. Uh, but they didn't make it into the uh, summary, so I left them out of the DP. You're welcome. Yeah. I mean, you would recognize the name. So Pistol, Nim, they all show up. Uh, okay. So why is this place so goddamn popular? It's um, not. It's not. But I do feel like it's having a moment. Um, do you? I, 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 okay, maybe. Okay. I guess I need to be more specific about what constitutes a moment because I feel like I'm saying this every week. Like, this play isn't all that popular, even though I've seen it produced like by three or four different companies. Um, Santa Cruz Shakespeare just did Merry Wives, I think, last year or the year before. Uh, OSF just did theirs last year. Maybe 
maybe it was the year before that. Yeah, it was within the last couple of years. Uh, but they did it in conjunction with another Falstaff play, usually with one or two Henry Four or both. Happens. Uh, not standing alone because this play just ugh, it's so dumb. And you need to know who Falstaff is for any of this to be funny. So like you need to do it in conjunction with one of the Henry Fours. Um, I'm not and sure then, that that's actually true. I I I feel like. To have I don't, a richer Falstaff experience, you need to you need to have sure, it. but I don't think it the humor of the play, such as it is, depends on knowing no. the Henry Ford. You plays. just miss out on a lot of the in jokes um, with the characters, not many. the plot. With characters, not plot. But um, and then ASC is about to do Merry Wives as part of the Actors Renaissance season with one Henry Four, which is the exact same way they did it last time yeah, they did it with with one Henry Four. Yep. So, um, other than that, I don't have other words to say. This play is not particularly popular. I have no idea how popular it was in its own time. Um, probably was pretty popular. I mean, it's it's a classic mm, sequel, mm, you know? Mm. It's like creating a an extra play because you like a few of the characters from your other stuff. You know, it's like, like the Marvel movies or... Fast I mean, I furious. think this, this play is sort of famously Shakespeare's worst play. Like, critical consensus is this is a bad play and it's not good and people don't <laughs> like it. And yeah, having said true. all of that, like, I hope that we have listeners out there who are like, no, no, this is a good play and I like it a lot and they will get in touch and tell us why we're wrong. Um, yeah. But Please the do. prevailing opinion, thrown. right, is that this is not a good play. It's a really, yeah. really bad play. So that leads us into our summary. Uh, You're welcome. <laughs> which, which, you know, uh, this week we're calling this is a bad summary for a bad play. Are you yeah. ready? Okay. I'm ready. Let's All right. do it. Okay, so Slender is in love with Anne Page, and also Dr. Caius is in love with Anne Page, and Slender gets Mistress Quickly to help him with Anne, and Dr. Caius gets Mistress Quickly to help him with Anne, and Mistress Quickly knows that neither man has any chance with Anne Page. Uh, Also, Falstaff is poor and has to get a real job, which he does not want to do, so he decides instead that he is just going to seduce Mistress Page and also Mistress Ford and get them to give him money, and then he doesn't have to work. He just gets to have sex. Yeah, I mean, that's Falstaff's M.O. So, Act 2, Mistress Page and Mistress Ford receive identical love letters from Falstaff. He's such a creative dude. They plan to get revenge together. Master Ford is suspicious about Falstaff and disguises himself as, quote, Mr. Brooke to find out what Falstaff is really up to. Mistress Ford arranges a meeting with Falstaff. Mr. Brooke asks Falstaff for help in wooing Mistress Ford, and Falstaff agrees to help her. And then Master Ford is horrified to learn that his wife has an assignation with Falstaff. And Mr. Ford vows to catch them in the act. Master Ford gathers some townsfolk to storm his house and catch Falstaff with his wife. Mistress Ford and Mistress Page set up a trap for Falstaff. Falstaff tries to seduce Mistress Ford. They hear her husband coming. She instructs Falstaff to hide himself in the laundry basket. The servants take the laundry basket out of the house and dump it in the river. Master Ford finds no evidence of impropriety. It's all very funny. Fenton tells Anne Page that he loves her. She loves him too. Master Page wants Anne to marry Slender. Mistress Page wants Anne to marry Dr. Caius. Anne and Fenton ask Mistress Quickly for help. 
Falstaff is angry that he's been tricked. He complains to Mr. Brooke slash Master Ford. And Master Ford is angry that he was hoodwinked. So many angry men. Act four. There are some Latin jokes from our old fusty scholars. Falstaff and Mistress Ford have yet another meeting. They hear Master Ford coming. Again, Mistress Ford dresses Falstaff as her auntie. And Mr. Ford hates her auntie. Master Ford beats Falstaff out of the house. Mistress Ford and Mistress Page think this is all very funny. But it's time to let their husbands in on the joke. And Master Ford promises never to be jealous again. (laughs) Yeah, right. They all come up with a plan to make Falstaff think he's being attacked by fairies in the park. Anne Page will dress as the queen of the fairies. The pages plan to have their own match, steal Anne away in the festivities and marry her. So... Mistress Page plans for Dr. Caius to steal Anne away. Master Page plans for Slender to steal Anne away. But Anne plans to run away with Fenton instead. In Act 5, there's a whole lot of shit that's not important. Then Falstaff dresses up in antlers and goes to the park at midnight to meet Mistress Ford again. Everyone is dressed as fairies. They scare Falstaff. Anne and Fenton run off to get married. Slender and Dr. Caius run off with boys that they think are Anne. All is revealed and Falstaff realizes he's been the joke the whole time. Everyone is pretty happy with how things work out. The end. Yeah, that pretty much wraps it up. That's the play. That's that's the play. That is the play. All right. Moving on. Yep. Yep. Moving on. Tips and tidbits time. Tell us uh, some cool stuff about the text, Jess. There are two early modern editions of this play. There's the quarto, the 1602 quarto, and the 1623 folio. Um, the folio text is generally taken as the uh, m- more reliable and more authorial text. Uh, the, the text in the folio was prepared from uh, a version of the text prepared by Scrivener Ralph Crane, who we should probably talk about at some point, because Ralph Crane is a super important guy for Shakespeare. Um, anyway, whatever. So there are huge differences between the 1602 quarto and the folio. The Latin lesson in 4.1, which accounts for a lot of the play's humor, but isn't, it doesn't translate to the modern audiences because we don't know Latin and it's boring. Um, so the Latin lesson in 4.1 is completely gone. Uh, and also most of act five gone. Uh, All the shit that I said that happens before Falstaff goes to the park. It's like six scenes or some shit or four or five scenes. It's a lot of scenes. And it's mostly just people preparing to trick Falstaff. It's not really super important. That's why I cut them from the summary. Also, possibly why they don't show up in the quarto, because they're not super important scenes. All of the remaining scenes in the quarto are dramatically shorter uh, than they are in the folio. The quarto is less than 60% the length of the folio. So quarto is 16, uh, sorry, yeah, 1,620 lines. Um, wow. And the folio is 2,700 lines. Dang. Yeah. Um, so, I, you know, we've talked a little bit about bad quartos on this podcast and how they're not actually bad, but this one might actually be a bad quarto. Like, it doesn't seem to represent what we think of as the more complete text very well. I, you know, I haven't read the Quarto. Uh, I suppose it, it probably has most of the plot. Like, it doesn't seem like there are like glaring 
contradictions in the quarto. It's just a lot shorter and it's missing some stuff, but it's not like there are two different plots happening. It's not like the quarto Merry Wives is a, an entirely different play. So I would like to go on record saying that uh, probably quarto's better because when it comes to the Merry Wives of Windsor, less is better. <laughs> <laughs> do the shorter text if you're gonna do it oh wouldn't it be great they're not gonna do the quarter text for ren season of yeah probably not. not but like that would be the tits i would watch the shit out of that it makes me crazy that they don't do the the less authorial texts in the ren season like you just did like it's do q1 why the fuck aren't you gonna do q it's fine whatever they did i think the last time they did hamlet in ren season they did the okay. q1 that was like 10 years ago. I know, ago, it was before our time. I, I don't care. Everything that happened before 2013 doesn't count at the ASC because <laughs> I wasn't there. Right, yeah. It's the pre-Jess Hamlet, PJH yeah. era. Yeah, so, yeah. obvs. <laughs> um, anyway, that's what I got. Quick cool. and dirty. Yeah. Uh, I, too, have just some quick and dirty stuff, so... That sounded terrible. Uh, quick and dirty stuff about this production or about making a production out of this play. Um, disguise. Yay. Disguises are fun. Um, it's mostly false staff that gets to do them, but other people get disguised as well. So those are always fun to do uh, and fun to play, particularly if you're doing some interesting doubling tracks. Might be fun for you. Uh, you get false staff. You get mistress quickly. You get buck basket shenanigans and fairies and leery old men. Literally the only things that save this play, I think, are some of the recurring characters, which I tend to think artistic directors these days agree with me because they rarely do this play without a Henry IV play or another false F play to accompany it. I think that's a mistake, but that's maybe a debate for a different day. Yeah. I mean, you know, mistake or not, I, I do think the tendency is to maybe you know here look look at these recurring characters isn't it fun usually it is fun to see a character recur like in the henry six cycle or even really the henry four cycle without merry wives it's nice to see a progression or an arc this is not an arc this is like like in your favorite tv show this is like one of those episodes and i forget there's a technical term for this that they have in the entertainment industry i forget what it is but it's basically an episode that you could plant in any part of the timeline and it would still make sense for the characters. It's called a bottle episode. A bottle episode? Oh, thank you. You're welcome. Yeah, that's what this is. This is a bottle episode. It uh, does not appear to me, and I haven't really scrutinized the text, but um, it does not seem to me like it has any specific uh, time linked to it. Uh, this could happen at any point in, in the Henry IV cycle or even, you know, predate it uh, for all we know. You know, this could be like, I don't know, Hal is off at school, so Falstaff needs something to do and he gallivants about in Windsor. I don't even know. Um, so, yeah, it's a bottle episode um, and, and sort of a poopy one at that. So here's my problem, too. Like right now in life in America, it's really tough for me to find lascivious old dudes and jealous husbands funny so uh, that may also be a problem with your audience i don't know you uh, out there listener but you got to know your audience i would think i would think an audience might find these some of these plot tropes 
less funny these days. So that's maybe working against you. I'm not really sure. Um, I have no way of testing that. This is just how I'm feeling right now. Um, so yeah, you've got two middle-class husbands and all the lascivious old men and the men going after Anne Page, some of whom are also old and lascivious, including my beloved Falstaff, uh, have a different, they just are going to read differently in the era of Me Too and post Me Too. And uh, ain't nobody got time for their bullshit. So maybe use this play to say something about that. I don't know. Flip it around and make it mean something. Oh, and also there's a French guy and a Welsh guy and making fun of foreigners is funny. Yay. Yeah, they have a duel. Yeah, they do. Uh, I left that out of the summary because it's not important. (laughs) They're really not important. They are hanging out. They're both... I think suitors for Anne Page as well. Yeah, the 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 one of them is Dr. Caius. Yeah, Dr. Uh, Caius is the Welsh guy, and then yeah. there's the French guy. Uh, Sir, he says bagar. Yeah, he says bagar all the time, and it's funny, haha. You know, Shakespeare wrote in their accents in the text. It's one of those kind of foreigner things. Always making Hooray, fun of the Welsh. xenophobia. Yay! My favorite thing. Yet another classic uh, early modern English trope. Making fun yeah. of them foreigners. So, um, I mean, you know, there's I still some, I guess, comedic money in that um, just because it's, I mean, the Welsh are always going to be funny, yep. frankly. Love you, Wales and Welsh people. Yep. But you're funny. Um, yeah, that was a bit of a ramble. I'm sorry. Um, fine. Yeah, I don't know. The more I think about it, the more I'm having trouble, like, distancing um the tropes in this play from like what's happening in the world right now and maybe that's a good thing you know maybe that would be productive um maybe take this play into your classroom or into your playhouse and say let's examine this and maybe not it's not going to ever take the fun out of it right like Falstaff being an idiot in a laundry basket and getting attacked by fairies pretty much is always going to be funny like some of that physical comedy is always funny but like couching it in something real might just save this play i don't know stick that in your blunt and smoke it yeah i said blunt dr evil bueller bueller i was literally just thinking about rick blunt oh (laughs) (laughs) because he was false the last time i did this yep and i was like and and what what are we sticking in rick blunt (laughs) Yep, Why are we smoking Rick Blunt? Yes, we are literally sticking things into Rick Blunt. You're welcome, oh, Rick. <laughs> I'm uncomfortable. <laughs> He's not. He's somewhere out there going, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, in one of the performances of Merry Wives, I sat on a gallant stool and he came out. You remember the moment he comes out with the, he was wearing the red long johns with his belly yes. hanging out? Yeah, he yep. put my face all over his belly. And I was like, this is this is my life. This is. I'm, <laughs> look I'm gonna... at your life. Look at yeah. Your yes. <laughs> so I I've been up close and personal with uh, Richard K. Blunt. Aren't you jealous of me? <laughs> I mean, sure. <laughs> yeah. No, I know yeah. all about his belly. Mm. Ah. Anyway, let's play a game. <laughs> yeah, please, let's play a game. Um, if we're going to do line roulette, I'm happy to do it. I just need to go and grab a text. Cool. Um, I mean, I, yeah, I think this is, you know, it's the, this is where line roulette 
originated was with this play. So really to try to find meaning. Yeah. yeah. You know, I think yeah. you're right. Yeah. No, I think you're exactly right. Yeah. I'm exactly yeah. right. It was the line about the deer. It was, yeah. Yep. yep. And Dr. Ralph had to like yep. draw conclusions about the meaning of everything. And he did. From so. Merry Wives. And he hates this play. Yeah. We all even do. Ralph, the text. Even Ralph hates this play. Okay. Okay. Okay, girl, I got my Norton. Alrighty. Let me turn to Mary Wise. So the game this week is Line Roulette, which is one of our favorite games. Um, if you're new here, what's going to happen is I'm going to roll some dice. And I'm going to use that to generate an act, scene, and line number. And Aubrey then gets one minute to explain how that single line represents the entire play yep okay i'm ready ready all right so we've got Ah! um act (laughs) three act three all right that's when good stuff happens i like it scene five do we have a scene five there is a three five hold on fantastic yep three five okay okay line Oh, there's a lot of lines in 3-5. 24. Line, since this is prose, uh, line 24 is a partial line, so I'm going to read line 24 and 25, if that's okay. Yeah, I'm interested to know what it is in yours. It is Falstaff, and then the editors of the Norton have added um, a stage direction that says, Drinking, then speaking to Bardolph. Take away these chalices. Go brew me a puddle of sack, finally. What? Yeah, three five line twenty four. That's yep. That's what it is. Well, to be perfectly accurate, line twenty four is take away, <laughs> and then the rest of it is twenty five. I don't even see that here in my oh? edition. Uh, uh, it's right it... after the ex, uh, the entrance of Mistress Quickly, towards oh, the top of three five. Yeah, it's right after her entrance. She says, by your leave, I cry you mercy. God, oh, I see, I see, I see. worship good morrow. Yeah, and then yeah. he says, take away these chalices. Go brew yeah. me a pottle of sack, finally. So in my Arden, line 24 is, by your leave, I cry you mercy. Give your worship good morrow. Oh, okay. So yeah. I guess it's it's right next door. I just wasn't yep. seeing it. Okay, take it away. You got You got a minute? So the line is, take away these chalices. Go brew me a pottle of sack, finally. And this definitely encapsulates the whole play because Falstaff does nothing but drink and try to find more ways to fund his drinking the whole play, right? Uh, that's, I mean, that's kind of his MO all the way through all of his plays. Um, but take away these chalices in particular. Uh, a chalice is also a symbol of like femininity and female genitalia. So you could extrapolate that as being like, go take away these women brew me a bottle of sack and sack of course is sugared down wine that is that is Falstaff's favorite um so his one his one request is always to do with objectifying women i.e naming chalices which I know I'm taking that way out of context but go with me here okay and also bring me sack take away your ladies or bring me the ladies and bottle me some sack Okay, I'm done. All right. Great. Thank you. That was the whole like play. 58 seconds or whatever. So you're perfect. Play, Michelle. You're welcome.
really went off on a tangent there with the <sighs> genitalia, but it was the first thing I could think of. <laughs> no, that's good. That's good. You're welcome, world. That's a whole new interpretation of this play that you didn't want. Um, looks like we've got some corrections this week. So We do have a correction. Okay, let me just break it down for you folks. I have a confession to make. So we say a lot of things on this podcast, and sometimes we misspeak or misinterpret information or just get things wrong. So it only seems right to correct the issues as necessary. This time, I need to correct myself because back in our As You Like It 201 episode, I said Benedict begins speaking in verse right after his gulling scene in Act 2 when he realizes he's in love with Beatrice. Eh, wrong. He doesn't. It's Beatrice that does that in Act 3 during her gulling scene. She jumps from uh, prose into verse and she's the one that more, more clearly shows that. So thanks, me. You're welcome, me. Good looking out. <laughs> You're welcome. I just needed to fix that it was nagging at me like yeah. i just happened upon the text later like i was i think prepping for a workshop or something and i saw that and i was like oh shit i was so wrong so gotta, gotta you keep go. yourself honest so and then it was like weighing on me so i felt like i needed to add it back in here and make sure you know okay it is also shakes bubble gossip time and i'm the one dropping the hot goss as a super excited fangirl so I got to hang out this weekend with Mia Gosling, who is the artist behind Good Tickle Brain. We have talked about her work before. Mm -hmm. um, if you don't know who she is, she does the three panel Shakespeare comics mm -hmm. um, that condense every play down to just three little stick figure cartoon panels. And they are um, witty and adorable and uh, she does, she sells a lot of her merchandise here at the American Shakespeare Center and elsewhere and on her own website. Um, she's working on full length comics. Um, she's done Macbeth and Romeo and Juliet. She's working on Julius Caesar. Yeah, uh, she's working on Midsummer. Well, she was working on Julius Caesar, which is what she told me yesterday. Well, not, we're not like quite done with it yet, but into scene two of Midsummer right now. Oh, so. yeah. Yeah. And um, she said she had hoped to get the Caesar one and another one, probably Midsummer, done. Um, but she's still working on it. Um, so she's branching out into full length uh, in comic interpretations of, of some of these plays. And she's just the most fun. She's just really sweet. And uh, so I had the pleasure of, you know, getting to take her to some workshops. And uh, she did a workshop for the Shakespeare and performance graduate students uh, in which she taught everybody how to do a uh, stick figure Shakespeare like she does. And really it all comes down to, it's kind of brilliant actually. It really all comes down to just eyebrows and mouths and like the combination of the eyebrows and the mouths to make expressive little cartoon faces. It was pretty brilliant. So that was, it was just tons of fun to get to know her. Kate Pitt, uh, who is a freelance dramaturg in the DC area was with her this whole weekend. So it was really cool to get to know Kate as well. So yeah, I got to hang out with some fellow Shakespeare nerds who approach Shakespeare in other ways this weekend. It also happened to be Pride weekend in Stanton. So she got to have all the fun of going to all of our shows and being around for Stanton's first annual Pride Festival. That's, that's what I got in my corner. That was the most exciting thing to happen to me ever in a while. Amazing. I love it. <laughs> So is it dick time? We should probably also deliver our results from last week. 
what were what were the tallies on your polls on Twitter? Because those are actually numbered. Um, Othello won narrowly, mm-hmm. and the Duke got one hundred percent of the votes. <laughs> Not a single yeah. person voted for Colombo, which I'm interested in. But you know, right now we don't like rapists, so. Right. Yeah. Let's hope that continues at least. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. That's kind of held up in, um, in what I put out on our Instagram and on my Facebook page. So everybody hands down the Duke, the Duke, the Duke. Yeah. Um, there were some, some people who haven't been paying attention to the rest of the dick bracket who were like, um, what about Iago? Like, well, if you were listening, you would know that Iago went up against Tamerlane we know he's a dick believe me mm-hmm. i know it's not like we mm-hmm. forgot about him you just he's not in this particular bracket so shut up yeah and othello everybody voted for othello oh did they yep how many everybody uh let's see seven more people for othello two oh, more for Cassius. i think i think that'll that's enough to bump it over because it was so tight yeah all right well then i'm not gonna be angry about it othello wins huzzah yeah, it was just two more for Cassius and seven more for Othello by my Good. polls. So because Othello is correct and Cassius is not correct. <laughs> I was okay. gonna anyway. Okay, so the dick bracket. So last week our yep. matchups were Othello versus Cassius and Columbo from the Cardinal versus the Duke from Revengers. Um, and Othello narrowly beat out Cassius, and the Duke from Revengers <laughs> got one hundred percent of the votes. So uh, they're moving forward. So this week we've got mm. we've got two matchups, uh, and I think I think these are the last two matchups uh, from round one. You are correct. Fantastic. Yeah. So yeah, because with Lindsay we talked about Livia and Chiron and Demetrius and Alice and yep. Aversham versus Margaret, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Yeah. yep. So yeah. yeah, it is. Yep. Alrighty. Fantastic. Oh, yeah, shit's getting amazing. Real- uh, okay, so this week we have Piero from Antonio's Revenge, and also Antonio and Melita, but like mostly the shut shit he does is in uh, Antonio's Revenge. Uh, so Piero from Antonio's Revenge versus the Cardinal from the Cardinal. So in the Cardinal, we have the Cardinal, and the Cardinal is trying to get his nephew Columbo, who was in last week's dick bracket. He's trying to get his nephew Card- Columbo <laughs> to marry the Duchess. Um, and the Duchess has her own ideas about that and then does not marry Columbo. And then Columbo dies. Uh, he is, he's murdered. And also the Duchess's, uh, intended husband, Alvarez, um, is murdered. So the Duchess sort of goes crazy with grief and the Cardinal is appointed her guardian. And so the Cardinal is really mad that the Duchess has gone crazy because she now cannot be aware of any revenge he has in store for her for foiling his plans to marry her to his nephew. So the Cardinal goes to visit the Duchess and in in their audience, he sets about wooing the Duchess and kissing her and then is like, oh, this is weird. I was super angry and now I'm super lustful. So think I'm just going to rape you instead. And then the rape is foiled. The Cardinal confesses his many sins. And then the Cardinal poisons the Duchess and also himself. The end. Wow. Yeah. What a dick. Yeah. So there's, 
some rape and some poison, which sounds a lot like every other fucking dick we've had recently. Right? There's, um, yeah, I'm sensing a trend here. Jesus. Uh, so in Antonio's Revenge, Duke Piero has, he, he starts the play by murdering Andrugio. That's a, a dude. He murders a dude. Then he slanders his own daughter's reputation, calling her a whore to prevent her marriage to Antonio, who he does not like. Then uh, Piero tries to marry himself to Antonio's mother to control both Antonio and all of the fortunes because that's what you do. Uh, He murders some functionaries and servant type folks. And then he has like a really gruesome death, which is awesome and plays into Antonio's revenge. But essentially he slanders his own daughter's name. He calls her a whore. Um, He does some murder and this is what he does. He doesn't rape anybody or try to rape anybody, which I suppose is a what step a in the right direction. Right? Uh, so that's, yeah, that's that's Piero from Antonio's Revenge versus the Cardinal from the Cardinal. All right. Take it away. And, what else we got? Oh, the matchup to end all matchups thus far, in my opinion. I've been waiting for this one. All right. I've been waiting. Uh, it's Tamara versus your boy Richard the Third. And uh, to quote Gina from Brooklyn Nine-Nine, oh, dang. <laughs> sorry, I've just been dying to do that. I can't. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. I've been watching a lot of Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Anyway, um, so Tamara, she's the queen of the goths. She has, uh, she's been subdued in battle by Saturninus and Titus in Titus Andronicus, taken back to Rome as like, a prize and she agrees to marry saturninus but then like through her clenched jaw she's like i'm gonna murder all of you she she basically plans to wreak her revenge on all of them and she starts by setting her sons chiron and demetrius on lavinia uh so she's one of those women who orchestrates graphic horrible violence against other women and and then she spends the rest of the play uh, basically trying to kill off all of the men uh, who ha- in Rome who have wronged her. So she's a bad bitch. I don't know. Kind of got some mad respect, though. But I think I'm dealing with some rage today. Can't really say why. Um, <laughs> and then you have Richard III, uh, your favorite sneering, love-to-hate-him, bunch-backed spider, bottled spider, <laughs> bunch-backed toad. <laughs> I don't know what a bunchback um, spider is. Who, yeah, who who spends, you know, most of the Henry VI cycle murdering his way through England uh, and through the Lancaster family. And then uh, decides that he's bored in his own play because it's a peacetime now. And so he's just going to lay plots for the members of his own family and uh, murder his way to the throne. Which is what he does, uh, including his two young nephews, including one of his own brothers, and and many others. So, murder, murder, murder. We have big time murderers matching up against these two. Yeah. So there's that. Who's the worse? Who's the bigger dick? I'm not quite sure. I don't know. Tamara f- 
feels to me a little more justified in her rage. But like I said, I'm working through some stuff today. So, but she also does like orchestrate rape and mutilation. So that's terrible. Don't do that. I have some very strong opinions on this. Then I'm say not going to say what they are. I'm not going to say what they are. I don't want to sway the listeners. Oh, all right. <laughs> then maybe I should cut around what I said and not try to sway the listeners. I don't know. Eh, okay. So those are your matchups. Once again, Piero from Antonio's Revenge versus the Cardinal, the titular Cardinal in The Cardinal, who has no other name. He's just called the Cardinal. No, he's just the Cardinal. Super creative uh, naming by John Shirley there. Good job, Shirley. Uh, and also Tamara versus Richard of Gloucester, Rich, aka Richard III. So there we go. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you leave this podcast more informed than when you started. Tune in next week for Measure for Measure 101. I'm so excited. Measure for Measure. One of my favorite plays. More men who give us the oogies. Oh, boy. So Whamlet out. Whamlet out. If you liked this podcast, subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or Google Play. For show notes and other fun things, you can visit our website at www.hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. Or you can drop us an email at holla at hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. You can find us on Instagram at hurlyburlyshakes. Or at hurlyburlyshake on Twitter. The Hurly Burly Shakespeare Show was produced and edited by Jess Hamlet and Aubrey Whitlock. Our fantastic theme music was composed by Jonathan Shue. You can learn more about him at jonathanshue.com or find his albums on iTunes. All opinions you heard on this podcast are our own and are not at all affiliated with our institutions of work and or study. He's, this is okay. This is how not to write a letter to anyone you think you're in love with or are trying to seduce. But here it is: You are not young, nor more am I. Go then. There's sympathy. You are merry, so am I. Ha ha. Then there's more sympathy. You love sack, and so do I. Would you desire better sympathy? Good job, Falstaff. That was terrible. been six months since I've been on the road Got out of jail six months ago I feel like I'm knocking on Satan's door Cause to tell the truth I can't take it no more We don't need no stinking notes We fly by the seat of our pants Except I'm not wearing pants So there it is Hot I mean it's (laughs) Sunday evening And I did hard work today And I deserve to be pantsless